Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. The Humanities Forum organized tonight's event, which is the 250th anniversary of the Spanish discovery of the Bay Area. And uh, we have, for our great benefit and to elucidate the whole details of it, Mitch Postel, who is president of the San Mateo County Historical Association. And we're in for a great treat because it, it's an interesting... Last night, by the way, we, we had uh, something about the indigenous peoples that lived here. And so now we're here having the Spanish arrival. And of course, the Northern Europeans came about 75 years later. So um, the Bay Area has been influenced by all these different cultures, as I was talking about earlier. Um, and it's very interesting to see how they mixed and, and didn't mix. So, Mitch, thank you very, very much for coming. Uh, thank you, George, and uh, thank everybody for uh, making it here. Tonight I'm going to talk to you about something that's very timely because um, we're right on the cusp of the 250th anniversary of Gaspar de Portola uh, finding uh, the bay. Um, that was November 4th, 1769. And um, um, the sighting of, of the bay um, has been referred to as the most significant discovery of the Spanish in North America in the 18th century. So a gigantic big deal when you think about um, Spain's influence uh, in the way that the West grew up. But the story goes back another 250 years before that. Uh, and so I'm going to talk about really tonight uh, more like a 500-year story. Now, by um, uh, 1492... Um, even before Columbus, um, Europeans had realized, in most part, the educated Europeans, that the world wasn't flat, despite what George just said. <laughs> and, it was, and it was round. The thing that they didn't realize was that there was a hemisphere uh, in between Europe and Asia. And, um, of course, um, Columbus is credited with the one that uh, discovers uh, this new world, but uh, in actuality, when um, he was on his first voyage and he was visiting Cuba, what we you know what we'd call Cuba today, uh, he thought he was in China, and it's of a real debate even to this day whether Columbus really realized um, at his death that he had discovered uh, a new world. Um, but Spain did um, after a few years. Uh, realized that they had bumped into um, a new world, and a new world that had a lot of different kinds of civilizations, and a new world that had, among those civilizations, some very wealthy, such as the Aztecs of uh, Mexico. And um, uh, by 1522, Hernan Cortes had conquered the Aztecs, and now great wealth was pouring in into Spain. And Cortes himself became very um, hungry for further conquests. And he heard these medieval tales. And you remember, 1522, you're not that far out of the Middle Ages. And he was hearing these tales about uh, civilizations that um, had their streets lined with gold and silver towers and um, a, a kingdom run by Amazons with a, king, a queen named Calafia. And that's how California gets its name, uh, Queen Calafia. And um, he, he, he was buying into this, and he was um, desiring to do further exploration to the north in order to uh, be able to encounter some of these great civilizations. Um, his first uh, foray was um, on the Pacific side, was to venture up to what we'd call Baja California today. Uh, for the longest time, it was thought to have been an island. But by 1539, the voyage of Yuloa had demonstrated that Baja was really um, a peninsula. Um, in the uh, following, Cortes was an ambitious viceroy of, of New Spain, a man named Antonio uh, Mendoza. And Mendoza shared um, Cortes's um, ambitions and um, sent into the center part of our today's United States a Franciscan um, a priest named uh, Marcos and a Christian Moore, uh, kind of a scout kind of a guy. Uh, his name was Estevanico. And Estevanico and Marcos um, did a lot of exploring in, in what we'd call the southwest of the United States today. And from a ridge 
Marcos says he saw it. He saw the glimmering city on the horizon. As a matter of fact, he could see the tower, and it was made of silver, he thought, because it was shimmering. And although Estevanico doesn't make it back, um, Marcos does and reports to Mendoza that he has found it. It really does exist. And so Mendoza gets very excited and begins to organize um, a, um, a party of adventurers, uh, conquistadors, led by Vasquez de Coronado. And you all recognize that name from the famous hotel that's uh, down, in, uh, down in San Diego. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Coronado had a, had a party of about 250, and uh, they ventured with uh, Father Marcos into, the, into what we call the United States today. And when they got to the point where Marcos said he saw that glimmering tower, well, they got closer and closer, and it turned out to be a whitewashed adobe. And perhaps because it was raining and it made it shine, who knows, but it was not the Silver City. And Marcos now is in uh, great um, uh, disrespect, but the party pushed on. And they get to a river and they ask the people there, um, the Indian people, hey, uh, you know, we're looking for these cities. And they tried to describe what they were looking for. And the people there would say, oh, yeah, just over the next mountain. <laughs> just keep going. And then they'd go over the next mountain and they'd ask the people. And they said, oh, yeah, we'll just, you know, just cross the river. And, you know, that, yeah, now Coronado was a conquistador. So he, was, he wasn't making friends along the way with the indigenous people. And uh, they probably hoped that he would never come back. Um, but he made it as far, we think, as far as Kansas, if you can imagine. And then finally uh, decided to come back and really had very little to show for um, all, that, um, all that effort. However, um, as, far as, the, um, as far as the native people were concerned, he happened to leave behind some horses. You know, so the Plains Indians in those days, they didn't have horses. Horses weren't native to that part of North America. And, um, and it, as it turns out, uh, the people were very grateful for having this gift of these horses, which multiplied greatly. And by the time the Spanish were ready to come back into this part of the world, you know, before they were encountering, encountering people living a subsistence living um, and just making it. But now with a horse... You know, the, the whole culture of being able to hunt buffalo and all the stuff that went along with a new rise in civilization for the Plains Indians became a reality, including the fact they were tremendous warriors. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, many, of, many of the opinion that they were the finest light, light cavalry the world's ever known. And, um, and this is now what the Spanish faced when they wanted to come back up that way uh, to do some colonization. So thank you, uh, thank you very much to Coronado. Well, um, Coronado comes back with a rather negative report, but this did not dissuade Mendoza. And now he's going to try uh, to find this civilization by not going into the interior of North America, but to go around and try to hit it from the coast. And for this duty, he's assigned a man named Juan Cabrillo, like the Cabrillo Highway, Highway 1. His name uh, is named for him. And he's given, an, he's given another assignment. He's given a, the assignment of mapping the coast as he, come up, as he comes up. And he's also given the assignment of finding the Northwest Passage. Okay, in this map shows us the Northwest Passage. You see there in North America, there's this big break, and you see that waterway? Because the Europeans had uh, reasoned that there was a Southwest Passage, right? I mean, Magellan had shown that. You can sail from the Atlantic to the Pacific through the Straits of Magellan or go around the Horn. And so all things being equal, there must be a Northwest Passage. But every time they, every time they try to hit it, from the east part of the of North America, they ran into Greenland or Newfoundland or something, and they they just couldn't hit it. And so Mendoza uh, reasoned, well, maybe we can get to it if we hit it from the west side of the continent. And of course, that's going to be a losing proposition because is there a Northwest Passage, a sea lane that goes? Be no, 
Okay, so uh, Cabrillo sails up the coast. He does a good job mapping, so that was a that was a, that was the number one thing. But of course, does he find great civilizations that can be conquered for gold and silver? No. And does he find the northwest north, northwest passage? No. And Cabrillo himself never even makes it back. Uh, he dies um, on the, uh, on the Channel Islands. But his crew come back. Crews come back and say to the um, Spanish authorities that they had found basically nothing. And so this lesson of the 1540s, when Spain was at its very peak of power, was that if, you, if, if, the, if the idea of searching for uh, these civilizations and exploring into North America was all about this gold and silver, it just wasn't worth it. And the, the visitation of those that then visited the coast uh, California coast remain one of a very very slim um, a very slim list, list of navigators. Among them was Sir Francis Drake, uh, who in 1579 was off the San, uh, off the California coast, um, and but he was out more uh, for um, uh, harassing Spanish shipping probably than uh, than anything else. And besides um, Sir Francis Drake, there was an annual ship that sailed from uh, the Philippines to get to Acapulco. And they would sail, uh, they would leave the Philippines and then sail northwest, uh, or rather northeast, um, and then hit the uh, Aleutians and then come back down, take the currents and the winds, pass the California coast, and then make it to to Acapulco. And so this Manila Galleon, um, it, 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 was, it functioned between 1565 and 1815, so this was uh, a long period. But besides that annual voyage and an occasional privateer like um, Sir Francis Drake, the California coast was pretty much uh, left alone for about 60 years. And then in 1602, uh, a Spaniard named Viscano, Sebastian Viscano, uh, made the offer to the Spanish authorities that, you know, that was a pretty good job to be able to be the um, captain of a Manila galleon. And so he said that if he could get the captaincy of the next Manila galleon, he would, with his own money, explore the California coast. And so the Spanish authorities thought that that was a pretty good deal. You know, by this time, Spain's um, uh, great um, abilities... Um, as a as a superpower were diminishing. You remember in 1588 was the destruction of their armada. And from that point forward, their strength was diminishing while the English was increasing and other powers um, were on the rise as well. So um, it was probably good news for the Spanish that they weren't going to have to expend too much energy uh, to be able to do this exploration in, 16, uh, in 1602. So um, it became Viscano's job, and he sailed up the coast, and he did a lot of renaming of places that uh, Cabrillo had named, and um, it kind of did some different charts. At a place uh, he named for his boss, Monterey, the Count de Monterey, he said, this is a beautiful enclosed harbor, safe from the weather, um, safe from the currents, um, and this would, be a, this would make a great uh, port someday. And um, even though um, when, when Fiscano came back, actually, um, his boss had left. And so he's presenting all this to a new boss, and he had named it Monterey. And so he was under suspicion that he was trying to do this to get, the, you know, to get his reward. And as a matter of fact, they had his map maker hanged for forgery. Yikes. So, um, so they were questioning this map. But nevertheless, um, it, remained, it remained part of what... Spain believed to be true, and another 167 years would pass until we get to this guy, uh, Gaspar de Portola. So think about how much time is going by, 167 years since Viscano, 227 years after Cabrillo, and 247 years after Cortez. So that's how this becomes a 500-year-old story. This time, the... um, uh, the action involved in, in getting um, California on the wavelengths is uh, brought to us by a man named Jose de Galvez, who is a, um, who's a viceroy of uh, New Spain. And um, he believed in something called defensive expansionism. That is, 
um, looking at the ambitions of the English and also the ambitions of the Russians and others, he was fearful that if they did not um, go north and get all to California, the consequences could be somebody else could pick it up, and that could be kind of a base of operation for them to take Mexico, et cetera, et cetera, and it's kind of the domino effect. You all remember the domino effect, those of us that remember the Vietnam War. Um, but that was Galvez's uh, domino effect. And um, uh, and so and he, uh, he had some, some pretty clear ideas about um, how this was going to be accomplished. He felt that um, because England was so strong on the waves, that the way that this expedition was going to have to operate was going to be, have to, was going to be overland. By, uh, by land, we're going to have to decide where the presidios, the forts, would go. And by land, we're going to have to decide where the missions were going to be. Um, because um, we couldn't hang on to them if, these, if we're going to strictly be a maritime, think that we're a maritime power. Uh, and, so the, and so the idea was is that San Diego would be the southern bastion with a mission and a presidio, and Monterey, the great port that Viscano had described, <clears throat> would be the um, northern bastion. And then in between would be a series of missions, each about a day's walk apart. And so that was the initial that was the initial plan. And also Galvez um, realized uh, that, the, uh, that Spain did not have enough manpower to be able to colonize Alta California. There just wasn't enough people interested uh, to becoming pioneers in this new place. And so he reasoned that we'll just work with those California Indians and we'll make them Spanish. They'll be, um, they'll be subjects of the King of Spain, and we'll bring all these Franciscans with us, and um, we'll make them good Catholics, and that's how we're going to hang on to, uh, to Alta, uh, Alta California. Oh, by the way, um, on that portrait here, this portrait was done decades after Portola had died. So exactly what he looked like, we, we really don't know. But anyways, it's the only one we got, so we use it. <laughs> so let's go, let's go back to him. Okay, Gaspar de Portola. So he's, he's kind of the central figure of tonight's discussion. He was uh, born in Catalan in 1717. He was the younger son within an aristocratic family, and that's not necessarily good news because if you're the younger son, that means you inherit like nothing. And um, he didn't have a vocation for the church, didn't want to be a priest, uh, he didn't want to be an attorney. Um, and so he was bound to be an army officer and entered the military, entered the army at the earliest possible age, 17, at the lowest possible commission rank, and that was Ensign. And Portola ex- experienced many military campaigns between uh, 1740 and, uh, seven, and the mid-1760s, but promotions were slow after his first one from Ensign to, um, to Lieutenant. It was eight years but then he spent 25 years as a lieutenant. It's a long time. And so by 1768, he's 51 years old, uh, and he gets the nod finally to become a captain, but he's given an assignment for what any ambitious officer in his position may well have regarded as a disaster, not for one with which he volunteered, to permanent duty overseas, part of the Galvez's buildup of this army of America, as he put it, uh, to uh, begin the possible um, uh, colonization of Alta California and to do some other things. Uh, Portola was also um, called upon to eject the Jesuits out of Baja. Okay, so the Jesuits are part of the Catholic Church. This is the Franciscans are, the order of priests. Um, by this time, the Jesuits um, in Europe had acquired the reputation of wherever they went they seem to um, hoard wealth and power. And because of that, many of the kings and queens of Europe began to distrust the Jesuits, including the king of uh, King Carlos of, uh, of Spain. However, in the Baja, I mean, you're going to really be hoarding wealth and power in the Baja? You know, if you collect horned lizards or something? I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's, uh, that, was, that was fair. As a matter of fact, it was judged to be unfair of the priests that were there in the Baja, so much so is that they could not trust 
any of the soldiers, any of the native soldiers that were already there. I mean, they had a pretty good captain named um, named Rivera, who was right there in the Baja, but they weren't going to give this job to him because Rivera sympathized with the priests, sympathized with the, with the Jesuits. And so in order to be able to pull this off, Spain's going to have to call upon somebody fresh from Europe um, that they can use. It's not going to have, they're not, he's not going to have those relationships with those uh, Jesuits who can get rid of them and install the Franciscans. And indeed, um, he was, he was able to, I mean, but there should be, there was a, a certain sensitivity to the Jesuits who had been there since 1697, who did a lot of hard work and really not for very much, uh, in return. The Royal Wit of 1768, um, was issued, and uh, now Galvez had the permission of the um, of the King of Spain to go forward with the Alta California adventure, and he started issuing um, all kinds of orders for Por- for Portola. But at the same time, Galvez was experiencing trouble in Sonora, where there was an Indian uprising, and at this point, perhaps his sanity was a little bit tested, because he ordered to be rounded up for duty against the Indians of Sonora, 500 monkeys to be put in uniform and marched against the Indians. And he's, already, he's issuing those orders while he's you know, issuing his orders for um, Portola. So Portola probably had some, some reason to be a little bit worried about his boss. <laughs> but he had, an, he had as a partner, uh, Yennefer Serra, who of course is so, uh, so famous in California history, who's uh, extremely... Um, capable, and um, and the two of them together um, were going to be able to pull a lot of this off. Um, Sarah took over from the Jesuits with his Franciscans and became the father president now, both of Baja and the future uh, Alta Alta California. Um, the expedition would consist of a number of Christianized Indians attacked as interpreters. Do you think that the Indians down in Mexico really could have been interpreters for the Indians up in Alta, California? Probably wasn't a great idea, but anyways, they were there to help. Um, There was a few dozen soldiers, some blacksmiths and cooks, five carpenters, one engineer, and one uh, one doctor. There were three ships that were to support the expedition. Uh, Two of them were to meet uh, Portola and Sarah at San Diego, and that was the ship... Uh, the good ship San Carlos and the San Antonio. A third ship, the San Jose, was to meet the group at uh, at Monterey. Everybody got going, oh, just about around January of 1769. The San Antonio reached San Diego first after 50 days, uh, 54 days at sea. False charts drawn up by Viscano had them land too far north at first, and they had to come back down the coast. The San Carlos, meanwhile, arrived three weeks later with a scurvy-ridden crew. Meanwhile, the land expedition reached San Diego with only about half the original 300. Dozens at San Diego were sick. The lone doctor had gone insane. You know, this is something that happened to Spanish officials in the New World. You know, they were isolated. They didn't get a lot of direction from Spain. When they did, they were criticized. And so a lot of them um, had, had, had mental issues. The San Antonio was uh, sent back uh, to Mexico for supplies. But Portola knew that he couldn't stop at San Diego. He left Father Serra there uh, to establish California's first presidio and first mission. Uh, and um, then from there, all the soldiers that were still healthy, and there was about 60 of them, uh, he uh, rounded up, and with Father Crespi, who was one of the Franciscans, uh, and, and became a great diarist of the expedition, and the, and the party's engineer, the one engineer, Miguel Costanzo, uh, they set out uh, for, um, uh, for Alta California. And uh, they were looking at, you know, a trip into the unknown. You know, you think about Portola, here he was, you know, already in his 50s, and they're starting out in January of 1769. We know that they're not going to make it into into the Bay Area until November. All those months without a roof over your head. I mean, this was something that was. This is a test, certainly a test of endurance uh, for uh, for for everybody in the party, whether they were young soldiers or the older officers. 
Um, the route that they took was pretty much um, Highway 101 to, of today. Um, they called it El Camino Real, the King's Highway. This is a great um, uh, painting that was done by a woman named Laura Cunningham showing what Los Angeles might have looked like in 1769. And she has a whole book in which she's um, done paintings about what California looked like in 1769. That's really pretty cool. It's called A State of Change. And so I commend it to you if you ever get a chance to look at it. Well, here was, here's Monterey Bay. Um, when Portolana's party got there, they, they didn't see the San Jose, okay, the ship that they were supposed to meet there. And also, this wasn't an enclosed harbor. This wasn't a safe place. This wasn't protected from the currents and the winds. This can't be it. I mean, it's got to be, you know, too far south. And so we have to continue to go north, okay? And so on they came. And the, and the sad truth about the San Jose, it was never seen again. It was lost at sea, lost to history. We really don't know whatever happened to the San Jose. <clears throat> By October 23rd, um, they were in what we'd call San Mateo County today. And a little, little northwest of what uh, of, of Año Nuevo, which who Viscano had given the name Año Nuevo, uh, they encountered uh, they encountered an inter, inter, interesting Indian village, and all the way up the coast, when they got to um, San Mateo County, at every creek, it seems that they um, were able to encounter yet another village. So it was well peopled the, the coast side. But on October twenty third, um, they had a particularly interesting visit, and so remember I said that there were three diarists. So this is right out of Portola's uh, diary. October 23rd, at this, uh, at this village that they encountered. We traveled two hours and a half, stopping at a creek with a great deal of water and grass, where there was a village of 200 heathen. And then the engineer, Kostensoe, wrote, In the midst of the village was a great house of spherical shape, very roomy, while the other little houses, which were of pyramid construction and very small size, were built of pine splints. And because the big house stood out from the rest, the village was so named. So they called this place um, Casa Grande. And here's what, Chris, what Crespi, the third diarist, um, wrote uh, about this, this encounter. Here we stopped close to a large village. At this village, there was a very large grass-roofed house, round like a half orange, which, by what we saw the inside, could hold, could hold everyone in the whole village. Okay, so remember, Portola said there was 200 people. So this is kind of an amphitheater. And I think it's different than the credit that we give California Indians on the kinds of buildings that they were able to construct. A place where all the people could come and, uh, and have, uh, have a discourse. Uh, Crespi continues with some other interesting kinds of things. These heathens presented us with a great many large black and white colored tamales. The white tamales were made of acorns, and they, and they said the black ones were uh, very good too. They brought two or three bags of wild tobacco, who knows what that was, and our people took what they wanted of it. They all go naked and bareheaded, and are all of them well-featured, stout, and bearded. We have gathered from these heathens that in three days' journey that a ship is to be found. So it, it, it's interesting that the, the Indians here no, it's probably different from what Coronado, for example, encountered. They're very welcoming, okay? And they're giving them food, and the, and the soldiers are hungry. And they're um, giving them direction. And as a matter of fact, this particular group of uh, Indians um, were so um, uh, accommodating that they offered guides uh, to accompany, to accompany um, Portola. And, of course, they gave them the extra kind of jab. Uh, oh, you're looking for a ship, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, just keep going north. So that sounds familiar, but because there wasn't a San Jose. But uh, nevertheless, um, the, the Indians seemed to be acting in a very friend, friendly manner. Now, on, on October 26th, they reached uh, Parisima Creek. Uh, and um, here, um, Costanzo writes this about some of the problems they were having. Because the captain of the California Company... Uh, Don Fernando Rivera, being indisposed with the general ailment of scurvy and the flux of the bowels, which attacked a good many of our people, we were for forced to put off the march. 
So probably the Indian food were, was helping to solve the scurvy problem, but it looks like it also gave them a little indigestion. And the next day, Kostenso writes, um, we set out from the valley, which the soldiers called Los Cursos, Diarrhea Valley. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Here's the campsite that we'd call Half Moon Bay today. And there was an Indian village there because there was a creek, Pillar City's Creek. By October 31st, they were crossing uh, San Pedro Mountain, which separates today's Pacifica from Monterra. And um, Cosenso spots the Farallones. And at this point, he knows that they have passed Monterey. And and as a matter of fact, he tells uh, some of the officers this, but they keep it quiet from the men because there's a little bit of disappointment already that they haven't found the the San Jose, and they certainly didn't want to have a mutiny on their their hands. They descended uh, San Pedro Mountain, and they got into the Lindemar uh, Valley there in, in Pacifica, and uh, here they encountered um, a group of people that were known as the Arame. They were Ramatush Ohlone. And um, they lived at a place called Puristak. And as a matter of fact, Puristak is today a historic site because later on it became um, a mission outpost. And after that, it became uh, uh, an adobe um, house uh, was situated there um, that was built by a man named Francisco Sanchez. And that is run as a county park and historic in a historic county park uh, to this uh, very day, because the three first eras of California history are represented there in, in kind of important ways. Because these people of Perstack were the people that Portola, Portola um, met right before um, his. Uh, his, his famous discovery. And as a matter of fact, at the Sanchez Adobe on October 26th, we're going to be opening an interpretive center there. And we commissioned this painting uh, from uh, two um, uh, native people to be able to um, get an idea about what Peristac might have, might have uh, looked like 500 years ago to 250 years ago. Well, from this, uh, from this camp that was located close to uh, Peristac, uh, Portola sent to up Upper Ridge, which turns out to be Sweeney Ridge, uh, a party of hunters. And uh, the hunters get back and they say, well, you know, when we, got to, when we got to the top, we saw a lot of smokes. And smokes indicated to the Spanish that there were a lot more villages. There would be a lot more people. And indeed, there was going to be more people on the bay side, just like today, than over on the, on the coast side. And so Portola thought that was interesting. And so on the next day, November 3rd, he sent some scouts up there. They wanted to see if they couldn't find the San Jose. The scouts uh, got to the top, and they saw this really large body of water. And they thought, well, maybe the San Jose could be there. And so they came back, and they reported to Portola. And so on November 4th, this pivotal moment in California history, United States history, history of Western Hemisphere, uh, Portola and his group made it to top Sweeney Ridge, and here they spotted uh, this great estuary. And so on this, on this great, in this great moment, uh, at this time during uh, what could be described as the most important Spanish discovery of the 18th century, because it's so important, I will read Portola's entire entry uh, into his diary. We traveled three hours, all of it bad roads, Stop with no water. That's it. He's a European. He's nonplussed by all this. Uh, he just wanted to get back to Europe. Um, this wasn't fun. Um, but some of the others that were along for the ride um, felt that they had found something important. The engineer, Kosenso, uh, described a great estuary in his journal. And, of course, uh, Father Crespi, who was very excited about everything that he had found in this Ohlone country, um, he, he, he thought that there were great sites for missions, and uh, he, he loved the people already, that they would make great Christians later on. Uh, he describes this um, estuary as a large arm of the sea and a prodigy of nature 
uh, a place where all the navies of the world could uh, dock their uh, their navies. So he's uh, he's very impressed. And so at this moment, Portola makes a, a fateful decision because instead instead of continuing to go north where he would have encountered the Golden Gate and then really kind of got an idea about what he had seen, he decides to try to find the San Jose and to go east, okay, descending Sweeney Ridge into what we'd call San Bruno today, and then turning south down um, San Andreas Valley, where the, where the lakes are today, you know, the lakes, the watershed for San Francisco. And so they, as a matter of fact, they camped twice in the San Andreas Valley, and they ended up at Palo Alto. Uh, and, of course, they gave it, they gave it that name, the Tall Trees. Uh, and um, Fortalas sent then into the East Bay a party of scouts so that they could maybe report back and f- maybe we could figure out what it is that this estuary is all about. And, uh, but they didn't make it far enough uh, north up the East Bay to be able to see this Golden Gate. Okay, they didn't make it far enough. So they came back to Portland, and they said to Portland, well, you know, we didn't see anything. Not really. And in great despair, Portola writes in his uh, diary, I have found nothing. And he continues, if the Russians really want this part of the world, they deserve it as a punishment for their aggressive design. And that's, you know, that's his attitude. And so they retraced their steps all the way back to San Diego. Well, Portola's uh, report is negative, but, um, of course, um, there's other opinions uh, particularly Crespi, um, who campaigns that uh, they have really encountered much more than you might expect. And um, the next year, 1770, um, uh, Portola is compelled to come back up, and now they figure out where Monterey really was and establish California's second mission and second uh, presidio. And from there, uh, Portola sends his second command, a guy named Pedro Fagas, into the East Bay. And this time, he does penetrate uh, up the um, East Bay uh, Bay line uh, far enough to be able to see the Golden Gate. And from that, now the Spanish are going to be able to start figuring out this geography of California. Now, you think about that for a minute. It's not until 1770 that they can find the gate. 1770. Why? I mean, you have Cabrillo sailed by in 1542 and the annual Manila Galleons or Francis Drake, Lascano, all these people. How come it took all those years? Well, for one thing, navigators didn't like to get very close to the gate because of the, because of the dragon's teeth, as they called them, uh, the Farallones. Uh, they were a navigational hazard, and they wanted to sail west of those puppies. And by doing so, they were pretty far away from the gate. Also, um, you could blame the fogs, certainly. But the, the third thing, which makes sense only if you can visualize the Golden Gate without that bridge to market, is that when you would sail by, um, the gate itself is very narrow. And there's islands in back of it, and then there's the East Bay Hills. And it was kind of disguised. Um, and, um, you know, it could be just a small cove. And so for all those years... Uh, since the time of Cabrillo, really, uh, the Golden Gate had gone undiscovered and had to be discovered from land. Uh, this is uh, Crespi's uh, chart. Um, it's looking, um, the bottom is west and the top is east. And you see that little entry there, that's the outer San Francisco Bay. And then you get the bay itself. And then, you know, they're getting an idea of the delta and, um, and the river valleys uh, uh, to the east. But the um, real um, changing, um, a real, another real change point for the Spanish came in 1775 when that good ship, the San Carlos, demonstrated that you could sail through the gate, that it was navigable. And now things really went into motion among the Spanish uh, because they figured that if you could uh, protect the Golden Gate, then you had the bay. And if you had the bay, you had the delta. And if you had the delta, you had the San Joaquin and the Sacramento rivers, because those all were navigable. And in the days when the sailing ship was the most important form of transportation available, uh, this was a huge uh, revelation. 
And, and this was a, a map that the San Carlos uh, did, and it was a much more accurate map than certainly Crespi's. And for the first time, it's kind of interesting for some of our, uh, us locals, because for the first time, it showed the bay line uh, uh, in, an accurate, uh, in an accurate map. And so game was on. Uh, the next year, 1776, uh, Juan Batista de Anza comes up from Mexico with uh, 240 uh, colonizers, and uh, they stop at Monterey. Uh, Anza cites the mission of Presidio at San Francisco. A new bastion for Alta California is then going to be established, and the colonial period is on. Well, this is an um, important uh, beginning, uh, for certainly for the Spanish and for uh, Western society, but it also talk, we also must uh, recognize that this was the beginning of the end of other civilizations uh, that that had been there. Uh, for example, are the Ohlone people that occupied uh, the lands between Contra Costa and Monterey County, about 10,000 uh, people altogether. By 1810, they were completely taken into the mission system, and their culture nearly Nearly, erad- uh, nearly eradicated. Um, we'll keep them on for a little bit more. Um, you know, the, this description of California as a wilderness uh, in 1769 is a bit misle- misleading because there were people here and there were civilizations. Um, as a matter of fact, California had the densest population of people north of Me- Mexico at this time, about 300,000 people. Now, it doesn't sound much. But if you were to add up all the Plains Indians at this time, the Arapaho and the Sioux and the Cheyenne and all those, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood uh, famous kind of tribes, 200,000. 300,000 California Indians. So there were a lot of people here. And, um, you know, and even Portola is remarking, um, especially in Ohlone country, about every creek you encounter people and then on the Bayside uh, even more. Uh, nevertheless, uh, California Indians kind of taken on the chin from the early um, intellectuals. Um, early anthropologists said, well, you know, they're Stone Age. They don't have metallurgy. They're prehistoric. They didn't have written language. They're hunter-gatherers. They don't have agriculture, as George was talking about, as an indicator of civilization. But, you know, this misses, as, as, and defenders of the California Indians have demonstrated that this misses some um, big points. Um, they were consummate um, uh, environmentalists of their day. They never took what was more than what was needed. They controlled uh, their birth rate uh, through ritual and also acceptance of homosexuality and, uh, and abortion. Uh, they burned their land periodically to um, decrease the chances of truly um, dangerous fires, like you know, kind of like we have today, and also propagated uh, certain grasslands that were excellent for the kinds of animals that um, they depended upon for food. Um, their diets uh, as hunter-gatherers were probably more sensible and nutritious than the, that Spanish, what they had at the same time. The typical Ohlone Indian lived to be about 40 years old. Now, if you factor in infant mortality... That means that a lot of a lot of these Ohlone Indians have got to be pretty old, and um, uh, you know, and the and the birth rate, or rather the um, uh, the life expectancy of a European at the same time was not forty years. Um, wars were limited affairs that were kind of governed by the leaders. The, the leaders were very good at what they did. They maintained balances with other tribes within the tribe themselves. Uh, they took care to. Um, uh, to make sure that those that could not take care of themselves within a village um, could, the orphans, the crippled, uh, the old. There was no such thing as a homeless, a lonely. Um, there was lots that, you know, that we can, you know, learn from those people and not um, uh, measure them the way that these early anthropologists had, even though that, that, um, that, that denigration still exists with us uh, today. You know, their, their leaders were measured um, by good breeding and generosity and not how much wealth they had accumulated. In fact, um, uh, theirs was a very giving society uh, and um, a very successful society, one that would be free of major natural disasters, wars, famines, or communicable diseases until 
of course, the coming of the colonizers. So it's uh, uh, in, in recent times, as they say, scholars have come to the defense of, of the Indians quite a bit. There's a story about um, uh, one of the, well, the last California Indian living in the Aboriginal lifestyle. Everybody knows his name here. Ishii, right? Okay. And there's a story about Ishii, uh, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but I, I repeat it anyways, uh, that um, uh, you know, he, he was discovered in 1911 by a um, university professor at, at Cal, uh, Dr. Um, Alfred Krober. And, um, and uh, Krober um, took very, um, very great care of Ishii and um, was constantly taking notes because everything about this man was important to him. And so one day Ishii said, you know, he, he was writing in his book, and Ishii kind of put his hand on it. He goes, you put Ishii here, you know, in the book. And Robert said, yeah, you don't put Ishii here. And so maybe that's how we'll end it today, is that we're um, certainly we're commemorating an an, an, an an a very, very important occasion um, in California history, uh, whereby um, um, things are going to change rapidly, where before, for thousands of years, they had remained the same. But at the same time as we think about all those changes, it's a time also to reflect on the people that were there before and make sure we don't, we don't forget them. Thank you. And I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they are listening to Mitch Postle from the San Mateo Historical Society uh, speaking about uh, the 250th anniversary of the Spanish discovery of the Bay Area. So uh, it's time for questions. Who would like to ask the first question? Just to let you know, I'm actually a direct descendant of a member of the uh, Portola expedition. Wow. So actually, uh, it was uh, Pablo and Coda and Andres both were on the in the Portola expedition. Uh, they were the soldiers? Yeah, they were, they were curious. Uh-huh. And uh, were they, they go down through the Pico line. Were they buff vest or were they, uh, were they uh, the uh, dragoons? I don't know. Oh. I don't know the details of it. But oh. they, they're descended uh, from my grandmother. Uh, it's Maria Virginia Pico. You should be familiar with the Pico name. Her, one of her grandfathers was the brother of Pio Pico. Wow. So. But they go back. Uh, my the Ruiz family, which I'm from, was in the De Anza expedition. And interesting, you know, you hear all the stories of the, the harsh treatment, and they're largely true. But there were some Spaniards that uh, accepted the Indians. And like I'm 18% Chumash, as an example. I have a grandmother that was full-blooded Chumash, so they weren't all that way. But um, there's multiple people in my family who were in uh, early California. Um, I have a Laura on my grandmother's side that was one of the original 11 founding families of Los Angeles as well. So there is a society called Los Californianos that will be here in force uh, in November uh, for the discovery site. Uh, anyway, it's just interesting to hear the story. It's There's nothing you said that isn't that I that I've read in my histories that's not true or questionable. In fact, some of them some of them are even worse than, than what you said. Now, one last thing I'll tell you that I haven't proved this yet. My I have Russell, a relative who's a genealogist, and he's told me verbally that I actually am a direct descendant of Sancho Ruiz. And if you look that up, he was on the Columbus voyage. Wow. Well, it's I, an, that's what I'm working on. It's me. an honor to have you, Mr. Ruiz. That's that's for it's sure. Great, great. Yeah, he mentioned that um, uh, part of your family are Chumash. Yeah. So that was a great society of uh, Indian people who lived in the Santa Barbara area. Right. And they were they were quite advanced uh, in in a lot of ways. Um, one of the things that um, I should point out, um, uh, uh, a brief commercial, I guess, is that um, the historical associations working on two different um, projects. In relationship, well, a lot of projects, but one of the big projects is working with Tom over here, Huntington, on a um, Maloney Portola Trail uh, in San Mateo County to sort of um, reconfigure um, uh, the way that Portola came out the coast and then made it the discovery site and all the way to Palo Alto. And so uh, a lot of that is on public lands, 
And so we're getting a lot of momentum in order to be able to do that. And um, also, I invite all of you, I've got some little postcards on the table here, uh, to come visit us on um, October 26th when we open our interpretive center at the Sanchez Adobe Park. Uh, And we're going to have an Ohlone Day, as we're calling it there. And from 1030 to noon, um, we'll have um, Ohlone Crafts for the whole people. We're going to have a ribbon cutting at 1230. And then at 1 o'clock, we're going to have Ohlone Speakers including a gentleman that can uh, prove that his ancestors go all the way back to Puristak. Remember that village I showed you? Right. You know, Previously, we thought that there were no Ramatush. Uh, the Ramatush are the people that, in, uh, that lived on the San, uh, San Francisco Peninsula, uh, and um, we, we thought that there were none left. But he has been able to prove and demonstrate. His name is Jonathan Cadero, and he's going to be one of our speakers. He's from Southern California. And um, this is a great opportunity to, to hear him speak because he's very articulate and knows his stuff. Oh, is there, is there much scientific evidence of the difference in climate between 250 years ago and today? Um, you know, I'm sure there is, but I don't know about 250 years. Um, certainly, um, once the gold rush has started, I mean, they, they began scientifically looking at um, climate. And um, I'm sure it's demonstrating that things are getting a little bit warmer. In the Stanger and Brown piece that your association published, mm-hmm. um, there's an unresolved controversy over who actually saw it first. People in the know think they're in the know, dug a little bit, will go with Port of Law. But they also raised the question of a Lieutenant F.A.G.E. Faget. Fagas. How do you say it? Fagas. Fagas. Uh-huh. Yeah, who... Uh, Presumably, according to the uh, the point made, saw it, uh, saw the bay a bit earlier from somewhere in the hills of Berkeley. Can you um, maybe put the iron to that little wrinkle? Yeah, and that was the true gin. Yeah, that that that, that didn't happen because Fagas. <laughs> well, no, the Fagas controversy was, happened, but what, right. what's the no, scoop there? No, Fagas, that was the discovery of the Golden Gate. He discovers the Golden Gate. So when they're so when Brown oh, and I Stanger. See are talking about who discovered the Golden Gate. And that's actually the name of their book, Who Discovered the Golden Gate. They're talking about the controversy, not of the discovery of the bay, Ah. but the discovery of the Golden Gate. And I agree with them when they say it's Fagas, because he saw it in 1770. Now, some say that he may not have saw it in 1770, that he really didn't see it until 1772 when he was with Crespi. But, you know, let him fight about that. Well, uh, I'll conclude with this uh, close with a quick suggestion for the remaining uh, um, uh, flaneurs, walkers among us. You're probably right about Faguet. Because if you're going to see the gate most readily for the first time when you don't know what you're looking for, the Berkeley Hills is a better place to view it. And today, if you're walking around San Francisco, if you'll climb up Russian Hill, go to the George Sterling grade, Glade and look west, you'll see exactly why the Spanish never knew the gate was there for 200 years. And it's a wonderful walk, and you can bring your sandwich and have a picnic. I'll do it. <laughs> Sounds great. Uh, Mitch, you mentioned that um, the Manila Galleon came annually for how many years? Uh, between, uh, I think, uh, between... Uh, 1565 and 1815. What was the what was the purpose of that annual trip? They were extracting wealth out of the Philippines, and um, and delivering it to the to the royal houses of Spain. Interesting. And then last point. Uh, it sounds like uh, Gaspar de Portal is kind of mediocre. Would that be a description? <laughs> uh, Having no. known a few military people. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry if I made him sound, he certainly was not mediocre. I mean, if you can, you know. I mean, How about Anza, unimaginative then? Anza gets all the ink. You know, there's the Anza, the famous national trail for Anza, and, you know, on and on about Anza. But, you know, Portola was first. Um, now, he may have been a little bit um, uh, Bored with not bored, but maybe disgusted with this assignment in the new world. But he was a good soldier, and he carried out his assignment to the letter. And um, he he was uh, he was very capable, uh, especially if you consider that he was a soldier. He wasn't an explorer, and he and to go all those months, you know, with you know more than a year without a roof over his head, and he's in his fifties, and you know he's you know 
of course he's going to be a little cranky at times. And he's going to maybe write that, you know, you can have this in California. And, but notwithstanding, I mean, he was extremely accomplished. You know, the, the, they had a lot of trouble getting to San Diego. They lost, uh, you know, half their land forces and the ships were all. But he did not lose a soldier after they lo- left San Diego. All of them that went up, discovered the bay, camped to Palo Alto, they all came back. Now, they didn't come back with all their horses because they ate a few of those on the way back. But they, no, I, I, I apologize if I made him sound um, uh, less than capable because he was extremely, extremely good soldier. I think being a lieutenant for that many decades, that was probably part of well, you know, Spain wasn't having a lot of success, and so he could have gotten blamed for maybe. No, no personal connections. Right. Uh, another program that we had uh, filled in a little bit of this uh, thing about the Manila. There was so much uh, Spanish travel and trade between China and Asia and, and Peru that there was so, so much silver brought from Peru to China that it caused inflation in China in, in the, in the uh, money. Uh, so that's a lot of silver. So there must have been a really big so this, trade going on. So this had international consequences, all yeah. these things. All that between 1550 and, and mm-hmm. all the way through 1800, mm-hmm. there was all kinds of yeah. trade going on. It's good. Yeah, thank you. we don't, you know, the, the, from the East Coast point of view, didn't talk about. Yeah, I feel like I want to stand up for Portola, but I'll just get to my question. <laughs> Has anyone uh, put all of the campsites and the route on a modern map uh, to be able to follow it today? Yeah. So we, uh, that's what we're working on, as a matter of fact. And there was, a, um, there was an article that, or actually a whole journal that we devoted to it um, from our historical association. It was, ne- it was um, put together by a guy named Paul Reimer. And uh, using the diaries and looking at the topography and so forth, he kind of pinpoints where all the campsites were and the likely trail that was used. So does that include... Uh has someone done it for all of the coastal counties at Portola? No, just San Mateo County. <laughs> so, but it's in your historical journal. Yeah, and uh, it's, I think that, that issue may be online. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mitch, for the presentation. And when the uh, Spanish expedition arrived with its 60 soldiers having walked up the coast for a year, and there were 300,000 maybe uh, native Californians here, one of the statistics I'm curious about is not only did disease impact the, the, the native people, but there was a though there was a small number of Spanish colonists who would settle in San Diego and Santa Barbara, and maybe just a few thousand at one point. I heard it was five or ten thousand Spanish colonists along the coast in about thirty or forty years. They had this tremendous uh, agricultural economy based on cattle. And I heard the quote from a professor at the, uh, who said that there was a million cattle on the California coast as a result of this first wave of Spanish uh, uh, ranchers. Well, I, that I, was additionally the most a dis, very disruptive thing both to the landscape, the local tribes. It helped the local economy. But do you know that number? I'm curious about so the, the, the so the French- of it. So the Franciscans certainly uh, do introduce uh, cattle into Alta California, but it's it's more um, more controlled um, during their era, and it's not into the Mexican era California history. You know, in 1822, Mexico gets its independence from Spain, and by the 1830s, um, coastal California is being divided up into these great land grants that become these ranchos, and under the rancheros, yes, there's probably a million uh, cattle. Uh, in Alta California. I've, I've read that number, too. And the famous, you know, the, uh, of course, the favorite fan of this um, are the grizzly bears uh, because the Spanish are, they're butchering the cattle right on the open range, and they're taking the, ta- the tallow and the hides because you can trade with those, but, you know, you can't, you know, you can't get the meat to Boston. It's not going to last that long. It's going to spoil. And so they leave the carcasses out on the open range. I mean, they, they have all these cattle for the hides and the tattle, tallow, not because they're, you know, consuming the beasts for uh, for food. And so the grizzly bear population in California is um, estimated to have doubled during the Mexican era. So that was a nice surprise for the gold miners. 
They probably deserved it. So, so if that hadn't happened, then then Cal wouldn't be the Cal. Go Bears. <laughs> all, all, all that shit would change. Okay, we have time for one or two more questions. As a former research professor, forgive my being such a stickler for giving credit where credit is due, but the Ayala map of San Francisco Bay, perhaps you know, isn't his. It's the work of Lieutenant Canizares that uh, Ayala had commanded the San Carlos, and as he was about to set out doing his duty to map the bay, he shot himself in the foot and was laid up, and it was Canizares who did all that work and created the map, which, of course, the captain took credit for. They usually do. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> As a professor, you're probably familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I had, I had one question. Do you know who the, who was actually in the scouting party? Like I've heard Sergeant Ortega was in it, and there was three or four others that went up Sweeney's Ridge, actually saw it. But I haven't been able to find actually the names of who was in that party. You know, uh, beyond Ortega, um, I don't know either. Uh, I'm sure somebody has done the work and then exists somewhere. Personally, I don't know. But Ortega is, you know, he was the sergeant. And, of course, his lineage um, is famous in California because he has all kinds of um, children, and they populate all parts of Alta California, a very famous family, the Ortega family. But I don't know who the rest of them were. Well, that was just wonderful. Thank you. Great glimpse into the history. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.